0: Hey, my name is CJ. I am the Youth and Young Adults Minister here at Deer Run. And I got to say, I am I'm really happy to see all of you this morning. I know that uh, through our schedules, things can get really busy, and, and often it becomes easy to sacrifice Sunday for other plants. And so I got to say, uh, thank you for coming. And I didn't mention this earlier, but if you're a visitor here, I want to encourage you, before you leave, go check out our Welcome Center Let them know that you are visiting. There's a little card that we'd like you to fill out, and then we'd like to give you a gift as well. This week, we are in week two of our four-week series through uh, focusing on spiritual disciplines that I call Growing Pains. And last week, we talked about creating a space. And what that looked like to us was that rather than framing spiritual disciplines and focusing them on one specific topic like prayer or study, we framed it in a way of what it looks like to create a space for God and how having a spot for Him cultivates intimacy with Him. And that out of that intimacy, our first step in creating a space for God was through our hearts and we discovered that if we create a space for God, He will fill it. This week we're talking about making a sacrifice and we we live in a world that indulges in self-reliance and it it even forces people to become more self-reliant and this is actually the the, uh, topic that inspired me to create this series. It actually started with a conversation that I had with my dad talking about the importance of fasting. And there were times in Jesus' ministry where his followers were often left unprepared for certain situations. And though Jesus would try to prepare them, there were often times where that preparation that Jesus had, the followers of Jesus did not have. And because of their lack of preparation, they would often experience failure where they otherwise would have had success. There's many things in my life that I could share uh, that I, I just, I simply can't live without. And, and if I were to put it in the context, people are far more important than things, so don't mistake me here, but I think one of the biggest things that I can't live without is entertainment. And, and we have so many different things that feed entertainment, especially in my life. I am preaching from an iPad right now. But outside of that, I have a smartphone, I have a laptop, I have a TV, and there's in music, and there's just so many different forms of entertainment that I use at least once a day, if not several times. And if that entertainment was taken away from me, my whole day would radically change. Besides entertainment, I also love working out. In fact, there are times where if I go an entire week without going to the gym, without even going for a run or picking up a few dumbbells, whatever it is, if I'm not improving myself, after a week, if I don't have any of that, my body starts to feel rigid, I feel sore, and even my mind starts telling me, man, you got to get off of the couch and go. There's other things I can't live without too, one of which I'm sure you guys can relate with is social media. We have Facebook and Instagram and Twitter, and those are the three that I typically use, but there are countless forms of social media out there that people just absolutely love. But what about you? Consider the things that you can't live without. Maybe you're a little different than me, and one of the things you can't live without is nature. You know, I don't mind being in the woods, I don't mind camping, but there are some people who just live for it. In the winter, they can't wait to build a snowman or go snowboarding. And in the spring, they enjoy camping. And maybe even in the summer, that person just loves to go to the beach. And they love being outside and being a part of the nature. Maybe you're the kind of person who just loves your privacy. And after a long day, it might sound bad on the surface, but you want to be able to step away from your spouse, step away from your kids, and just have some time to yourself. Or maybe you are the kind of person who, you know what, your privacy and and nature can be left all aside, but travel is where you really find joy. And you really like being able to go on an adventure and find somewhere new, and being able to even just vacation out of state would be enough. We all have different things that we simply can't live without, but the thing is, God often asks us to sacrifice those things. God wants us to recognize the things we can't live without and to offer them up to Him. And so it's okay to enjoy entertainment, but there's times where God will say, put down the screen and pick up some scripture. And there's other times where privacy is all right, but often where we like to withdraw, God wants us to stand out. And even in work, you know, working and providing for your families is so important, but there's times where God is going to want you to sacrifice work hours for family time. And I find it easier to be able to give up the things that I can't live without when I'm prepared to give them up. Are any of you guys like that? One of the things, if if you're like me at least, one of the things that really helps me is when my wife tells me, hey, don't forget, we have a crazy busy weekend And that helps gear my mind and I can prepare myself mentally and then that weekend, it doesn't seem that bad anymore. And so I think preparation is a large part of it because it helps center our mental preparation around things. It's able to help us change our minds from fear to focus. Or it changes us from pain to purpose. Or it's the difference between turning us from dependence on something to delivery. And what I love is that this morning we are going to be looking at a scene where Jesus and his followers are in the midst of a situation that they could have been prepared for. In the Gospel of Mark, the author records this major event that happens in Jesus' life and then follows it up by a smaller event that still has quite a lot of significance. The major event was called the Transfiguration. In other words, it was a transformation of appearance, And this transfiguration was witnessed by Jesus' closest followers. These were kind of like the inner circle within the 12 disciples that followed Jesus everywhere they went. And so Jesus led Peter, James, and John up a mountain, and the name of that mountain is kind of left out. I think that's why it's argued that some say, well, that was Mount Tabor, and others say, no, that was a mountain closer to Caesarea. It couldn't have been Tabor. Whatever it is, they went up a mountain, And when they reached a certain point in that mountain, I'm assuming it's the peak, the very top of the mountain, Peter, James, and John start to witness some wild stuff. The first of which, they see Jesus' clothing completely transformed. The author actually describes this as a radiance that was so bright that people couldn't bleach their clothes to make it look this bright. It was glowing like the sun. And then suddenly, Peter, James, and John see Elijah and Moses, two guys who have been deceased for a very long time, suddenly appear on the mountain with them. And Peter, what what I love about Peter is that he always speaks out at times where he, he ought to just keep quiet. And he says, wow, what a momentous occasion. We should build tents for you guys. And completely disregarded, this voice from heaven calls out, it's God the Father saying, this is my son, listen to him. And that's about it. After that, Scripture says that the four of them, Peter, James, John, and Jesus, go back down the mountain. And when they reach the bottom of the mountain, Jesus sees the strangest predicament. At the bottom of the mountain, he's reunited with the rest of his followers, and this problem unfolds in Mark chapter 9. So if you have your Bibles this morning... Go ahead and open up to Mark chapter 9, and if you use your phone and you have you version, you can go to events and follow along with the sermon notes there, and even take notes of your own. Mark chapter 9, starting at verse 14, when they, the disciples, or I'm sorry, when they, Jesus and the three, came back to the disciples, they saw a large crowd around them. And some scribes arguing with them. Immediately when the entire crowd saw him, they were amazed and began running up to greet Jesus. And he asked them, what are you discussing with them? And one of the crowd answered him. I love this because Jesus is asking his disciples, hey, what are you talking to these people about? And this guy says, we're talking about this. One of the crowd answered him and said, Teacher, I brought you my son possessed with a spirit which makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it slams him on the ground and he foams at the mouth and he grinds his teeth and he stiffens out. I told your disciples to cast out the demon and they could not do it. Upon arrival, this crowd is gathered and usually when we read about these crowds, they're typically there to see Jesus. Whether Jesus is healing people, or he's teaching them, or even just simply loving. There were times where children would just gather at Jesus' feet, and the apostles would try to shoo them away, and Jesus said, no, let the children come to me. This crowd came for a very different reason. This group was drawn because the remaining nine of Jesus' followers, while the others were on the mountain... We're trying to heal the child that they couldn't, and in their failure, there were scribes drawing all kinds of attention to their failure. They were like calling in groups and saying, hey, come look at these guys. They say they're followers of Jesus, but they can't do a thing. They're failing. This guy is hurting, and his child has been possessed, and these followers of Jesus can't help him." And so growl- the crowd would just grow and grow and grow, watching the failure of these disciples. And what I like about this is that the attention immediately changes when Jesus arrives on the scene. You know, I wonder how long this had been going on before Jesus got to the bottom of the mountain. But as soon as they see him, everyone looks at Jesus and it says they were amazed. Now, I find it pretty easy to be amazed if you saw someone with the radiance of God's glory beaming off of their clothing. But everyone turned their attention to Jesus, and now they're looking to see, well, your followers couldn't change anything. Maybe you can. And suddenly, everyone's racing to greet Jesus, and Jesus takes a moment to assess this situation. And I love what Matthew Henry had to say about this particular passage. Matthew Henry is a Bible commentator. His commentary is available online. It's free to anyone. So if you want to check out anything or even in your own private studies, you're wondering, I wonder what other experts say about this. Feel free to look up a Matthew Henry commentary. He says, we have here the story of Christ casting the devil out of a child. Observe here Christ's return to his disciples and the perplexity he found them in. He laid aside his robes of glory and came to look after his family and to inquire what has become of them. Christ's glory above does not make him forget the concerns of his church below, which he visits them in great humility." And he came very seasonably when the disciples were embarrassed and run aground the scribes who were sworn enemies both to him and them had gained an advantage against them. Many times in Jesus' ministry, he was prepared for times like these. And these scribes would come up and they were always trying to just pick a fight with Jesus or pick a fight with his followers. And often when Jesus was there... He was able to defend them. But now that Jesus was on a mountain, secluded away from them, I think it must have been for the scribes like a shark smelling blood. These weren't your average religious folks. These scribes, they were finely educated in all the biblical writings. Some of these scribes were called Pharisees. These were kind of like the law-focused people. What they did was they didn't just keep people accountable to keep the law. They enforced it. And they would take vengeance upon themselves. And when people would break this law, they would make it their duty to discipline others rather than letting God do it. The other scribes that were there, they were called the Sadducees. And even though they were similar in education, their purpose was far different. The Sadducees didn't necessarily enforce the law, but rather they wanted to take advantage of it. And so they would use the law against those who were under it And seeking power, fame, and wealth, and whatever they could. And so, all these scribes are gathering together and they are pinning the disciples against their failures. And now, Jesus has arrived and he has an opportunity to address this situation. But before addressing that, I wanted to often consider how do we respond when we experience failure? You know, the disciples, they kept fighting and they kept trying and crowds just kept growing and it must have just been making this huge scene. And so there's times where we experience failures of the same sort. Maybe you're a parent and your child that you raised went really well, but now the other child is like you're getting nowhere. Or maybe for others who who try as you might, you can't seem to repair the past hurts of your marriage. Or in other cases where we put so much time and hard work into organization and, and church leadership tools and all kinds of other things that would benefit the church, and as soon as it feels like you're starting to create traction, it all falls apart. You know, we experience failure And it can be crippling, it can be really damaging, not just to our minds, but our emotions and the way that we look at things. And so if you're like me, sometimes the way you deal with this is by refusing to face reality. There's times where I get myself in over my head and I convince myself, I'm the only person who can do this. I can't depend on anyone else. If I don't fix this, no one else can. There's other times where people get so discouraged by their failures that they decide, I am, if this is the result of all my hard work and all my effort, forget it. I'm never going to try this again. And outside of that, there's other people that can feel just so beaten up and so guilt ridden by their failures that rather than seeking to improve their situation, they run and hide. This is how we respond to sin though, right? I mean, when we are in the mud, when we are in the dirt and we are being just beaten by our sin, we respond to it as failure and we think we can overcome our sin with willpower alone. We think that we are capable and by our own resolve, we can make this happen. We can beat the issue. But in reality, we let our sin problem rule us for years because we think our willpower is enough to overcome, yet we are so beaten when we inevitably fall. We become so discouraged, so guilt-ridden, that rather than run to the Father, we pretend our failure never happened. We treat our sin not as a problem, but merely as an inconvenience. We ought to be responding by sacrificing our pride, by owning up to our limitations, by recognizing I am an imperfect human being and when I fail, I can turn to God to find success. But how foolish are we to think that we could defeat sin with our willpower alone? Our response should be one of humility, but often we take it too far and we wallow in our own misery and we take a metaphorical whip and we start punishing ourselves and beating us for our own failures. And in reality, God the whole time is saying, stop, give me your limitations, give me your failures, give me your weakness, give me your whip and quit beating yourself up. But we live in a world that promotes this self-reliance, the kind of lifestyle that promotes you can do everything for your own, and so you can pump your own gas, you can plate your own meal, you can bag your own groceries. And even though this may be practical, it could be convenient. What eventually happens is we become conditioned to that kind of lifestyle, and we all know a person who who will never see a doctor. The kind of person that says, I'm fine, I'll be all right. Whatever's going on, it'll pass in time. I don't need to see a doctor. And this is exactly what the disciples were thinking. Continuing in verse 19, Jesus answered them and said, Oh, unbelieving generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring the boy to me. They brought the boy to him, and when he saw him, immediately the spirit threw him into a convulsion, and falling to the ground, he began rolling around and foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked the father, How, how long has this been happening to him? And the father said, From childhood. It has often thrown him both into the fire and into the water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, Take pity on us and help us. And Jesus said, If you can, all things are possible to him who believes. When Jesus saw that a crowd was rapidly gathering, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, You deaf and mute spirit, I command you, come out of him and do not enter him again. After crying out and throwing him into terrible convulsions, the spirit came out and the boy became so much like a corpse that most of them said he's dead. And Jesus took him by the hand and raised him and he got up. There is some powerful imagery here that I think if we just look at on the surface, we don't find out how we connect to this passage. One of them is this demon's reaction. It's, it's a reaction out of rebellion and disobedience. There's another form of Jesus' concern where his love and his sympathy pours out from him, not just for the child, but also for the father. And then we also see the father whose struggle was from disappointment and his faith being weakened because of it. Immediately, this child, the demon within the child, begins to throw a fight. As soon as the child was brought to Jesus, it starts throwing a tantrum. It must have known that its time was short. It must have known that it was limited in how much longer it had. Maybe it was just in the nature of this demon to oppose God, to even be reacting so violently in his presence. The demon clinged as much as it could, but nothing can challenge the authority of God, right? And so even after Jesus commanded this demon to get out, it tried to fight for one moment longer before finally being expelled. And Jesus recognizing that this has troubled a child from such a young age. I I imagine a 10-year-old boy who has been possessed by a demon since he was a toddler. And Jesus, recognizing what's going on, rather than running and addressing the crowds and shooing people away and shaming them for, for making such a spectacle, he tended to the needs of the family first. And then Jesus, or the Father, being uh, dealing with this struggle from his son, he must have been heartbroken over years and years of trying to be the solution for his son, but only being able to prevent harm. Rather than being able to heal his son, the most he could do was hold him while he was convulsing or hold him back from jumping into a fire or pull him out when he's dove into a lake or some body of water. And the father's struggle so difficult, so hard because he loves his son so much, yet he is entirely helpless to the situation. And over years of this, the father's faith must have been weakened. It must have been hurt. He must have been questioning, why, why is my son like this? Why can't I help him? Why is God letting this happen? And for years, this must have plagued the father's mind. And all of a sudden, all of these images, all these perceptions finally conclude when Jesus is successful where his followers failed. I encourage my students to often place themselves in scenarios like this. And so we have these three people, maybe life has made you like this child, where sin in the form of a demon has controlled you for years, and you yourself can't be the solution to the problem. Maybe you picture yourself as a father where you're hurt by the past, that your faith has become weak and that doubtful, and leaving you feeling victimized not by the sin, but by God himself. Or maybe you are like Jesus. I often tell my students, hey, don't be afraid to picture yourself like Jesus. As Christians, that's our goal. And so maybe you here this morning are discipling or ministering or teaching other students and helping them grow and be loved by your compassion for the hurting, the sick, and the disabled. Wherever you see yourself in this scenario Imagine that at this end, when the crowds finally walk away and the scribes are sent away, that now comes the teaching moment. And this is how Jesus explains it. If you're following along, this is where Mark's end of the gospel kind of trails off, but Matthew describes it in a little bit more detail. So you may want to flip open to Matthew chapter 17, and Jesus continues this on verse 19. Then the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, Why could we not drive it out? And Jesus said to them, Because of the littleness of your faith, for truly I say to you, if you have faith the size of a mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, Move from here to there, and it will move. And nothing will be impossible for you. But this kind, this demon, this struggle, doesn't go out except by prayer prayer. And fasting. Unlike the disciples, Jesus was prepared. And Jesus is the figurehead for Christianity. And who better to be the figurehead than the Son of God Himself? Throughout Jesus' ministry, we've noticed that He sets these principles and He sets these disciplines to teach His disciples, and He watches to see which of those are practicing those and which ones aren't. The Trinity of God is inseparable. It can't be explained by human reasoning, but what we are certain of and what Scripture makes clear is that God the Father and Jesus the Son are one. And so when Jesus was preparing for this transfiguration, he must have been dedicating a whole lot of time in prayer. He must have been making space for God to prepare himself for that. He must have also been teaching his apostles, his disciples, to fast with him during this time. And through Jesus' fast, he was prepared for the transfiguration, but the moment that came after that was still required for him to be fasting and praying. Jesus taught many things to his followers, but sometimes it just seemed that they weren't listening. During this time, Jesus had been discipling these followers. He's teaching them to love, pray, grow, and even sacrifice. And while Jesus must have been teaching them these things, Jesus would have been praying and sacrificing, but his followers must have been neglecting at least one of those things. And sacrifice is hard. In our culture, we become so self-reliant and so focused that we can do more for ourselves than anyone else could. And so God wants us to learn To be more dependent on him rather than reliant on ourselves. And that he could enable us in ways that otherwise we wouldn't be able to. God has storehouses of blessings and he tells us to test him in this. That if we were to give something to God that he would open those storehouses up for us. And that he would bless us far beyond what we could ever imagine. And this goes in that while talking with my dad he encouraged me to practice a dietary fast that was where I decided that off of his instruction off of his advice that I would take one day a week and not eat anything and I would just fast and I got to tell you the very beginning of that was a struggle I had done it for about seven or eight weeks but the first two or three were different they were and so the way I did this finalized with me taking Wednesday and not eating anything from 12 a.m. being midnight until 11.59 p.m. that same day. But it first started off with a totally different day. And so I picked a different day and I thought, hey, this will work. I also thought maybe I'll do it from the time I wake up to the time I go back to sleep. And all of those things were, were just optional I didn't put heavy parameters, I didn't really have a direct plan, all I knew is that I wanted to start practicing a spiritual discipline of fasting. And so I started practicing and it was a rough start because I changed how I wanted to probably three times throughout this whole time. The method changed during that time too, so rather than fasting from when I woke up to when I went to bed, I decided to make it 24 hours. And then the day changed as well because you know what? One day didn't work that well for my wife, and I wanted to be able to make it easier on her. I didn't want her to bear a burden that I was supposed to take. And so I changed the day, and what I found out is that God was showing me the how before ever teaching me the importance of why. And this is often where we get caught up, but I learned through my practice that through and the study of this passage that we can do more when we sacrifice more. Often scripture uses this dietary sacrifice. That's why I started. Because, you know what, it isn't easy to give food up for a day and to endure hunger pains during that time, but I'll tell you what's more painful is dealing with unresolved guilt. And that sacrificing a meal may be struggle, but guilt, giving your guilt to God is far more difficult. And so you tell yourself, I deserve this. I'm a mess, I'm a failure, I can't do anything right. And that unresolved guilt eats away at your joy, your peace, your confidence, and ultimately it starts to push you away from God, far worse than what any meal could be doing to you. God wants to give you freedom from the burden of your own guilt so that he can free you through his forgiveness. You can do more when you sacrifice more. Here at Deer Rum, we take up an offering, and that's a time where we pass these plates around and we use the generosity from our church to not just support the building, but to also support our missionaries. And so members freely give during this time, and finances are never just something to bat an eye at, but when you give, you put so much more than a dollar in a tray, you're placing your faith in God. But when you find yourself laid off and your branch closes and the stability that you had in consistent work hours is gone, you can be at peace knowing that God is faithful in return. You can do more when you sacrifice more. God designed sex to be the most intimate form of love between a husband and a wife. In fact, I've often taught that God's original intention for sex not only honors him, but it in itself is an act of worship. But lust is the death of God's original intention. Lust takes the intimacy between a husband and wife and turns it into a casual relationship between the bride of Christ and sin. Where taking dedicated time away from sex may be challenging, it's far more difficult to give up lust that has been built in your heart toward another man or woman. You can be freed from the shackles of lust by offering your sexuality to God. You can do more when you sacrifice more. It's so easy to get hung up on the why that I mentioned earlier that you never develop how. You get caught up with questions like, how is this going to make me a better Christian, a better husband, a better wife, a better parent, a better student? You ask yourself questions like, is God going to bless me, or am I just doing this for nothing? Or you get caught up and you say, if God wants me to live abundantly, why on earth would he want me to sacrifice things? Getting caught up like this becomes a barrier in developing the how. Choosing what to sacrifice, deciding how long you're going to make a sacrifice, learning what works for you or your family and what doesn't. But the more you practice, you can hammer out the how before you ever have to consider why. You can do more when you sacrifice more. We're coming to a close this morning, and what I want to do is I want you to consider the benefits that this can have that this one discipline would have on our entire church making sacrifices is incredibly difficult it takes a lot out of us to just give something up especially when that something is something that you can't live without rather than letting your guilt come between us and God we can testify how even in our failures God forgives And instead of letting the fear of living paycheck to paycheck or the possibility of being out of a stable income, we can find peace in knowing that God is faithful through his provision. And rather than leaving our lusts up to men and women around us, the way they dress, the shape of their bodies, the vibe that they give, we can celebrate the intimacy that's reserved only for our spouse. Picture the change that would happen if our church would make a sacrifice for God? How it would influence our relationships that even though you have had a terrible week and you have been so caught up in frustration that when you enter this building, all of those things can be given away. Consider the burdens that weigh heavy on your heart when you feel that guilt and you know I am failing every day and I can't seem to make things right. Imagine the difference it would make on you when you walk into this church And that guilt is lifted entirely off your shoulders. Picture the difference you could have in the lives of people around you. We are a church that God is using to send out, to be a ministering beacon to everyone in the community. Not just people on staff like me or Aaron or David, but everyone. And God can use you far more when you sacrifice to him. You can do more when you sacrifice more. The first step in making a sacrifice, I think, would have to start with giving your life to Jesus. Dedicating your years to following him. He urges us to follow him in his death, burial, but also in his resurrection. And in this, we're freed from the prisons we confine ourselves to, and we can learn how to truly live in the freedom that God offers. Will you take that step this morning? Will you come forward and sacrifice a life of self-reliance and depend on the one who has cared for you far more than what you could ever need? Would you give up your lifestyle of suffering in your own shame, punishing yourself for all your failures, and accept the forgiveness and the healing from the one who cares about you the most? This morning, I want to encourage you, if you haven't accepted Jesus as your Lord, that you can take the next step in coming forward. As Aaron prepares us and he plays us out this morning, you'll have an opportunity to come forward and whether you want to be prayed over or you want to decide to give your life to Christ, come forward and see me and we can talk about those things. Finally, church, I want to encourage you to be a church that makes a sacrifice. This may be one day a week, like I had said, but if you practice the how, the why can come later. Figure that out. Take some time and pray to God. Ask him, what is it that you want me to give? What is it that I ought to be giving to you so that you can work better through me? What is it that I need to release so that I can be prepared for what you call me to? Consider those things as we close. And remember that you can do more when you sacrifice more. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much. Not just for teaching us these spiritual disciplines, but also recognizing that your son made a sacrifice that none of us could have done. We're taught that that God shows his love to us, that Jesus came and died while we were still sinners, while we were enemies of him. And that very rarely would someone offer their life for a righteous person, or very rarely would someone sacrifice for someone else who is good. But how much greater the sacrifice you made that while we were enemies, while we were the people who hated you, you showed such endearing love to us. Father, we thank you and praise you for that love. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.
1: Will you stand and sing with us? Turn your eyes.
0: for Tony. (laughs) Either one. Hey, Anthony came forward and uh, last week you guys may have seen him. You guys can go ahead and have a seat. He shared uh, some of the physical and emotional struggles he was having and part of an update and a little bit of a praise is that he's got a day scheduled for the third for his pre-op for his knee, right? But one of the things Anthony had said is that he, he feels that he wants to make a sacrifice for god but but what does that even look like how do we do that and so i know that a lot of you guys may relate in that fashion because even though making sacrifices for god is very beneficial and we ought to be doing that what i sacrifice is going to be very different than what you would sacrifice and so what we can do now is we can ask god to reveal those things to us and so i'm going to pray and then you guys i'd love if you join us Heavenly Father, I thank you so much once again for the sacrifices that you've made for us and the way that you modeled sacrifice. God, I pray that for all of us here that may be urged in that, in that direction to be able to give things up for you, Amen. that we know each person is different and that you would call someone differently than you would someone else. And so God, I pray that you use your Holy Spirit over the lives of Anthony as well as the rest of the congregation to recognize what you may be asking them to give up. Father, focus us towards what causes distraction from you. Focus us on those things that we would rather live with, even at the cost of living without you. Father, help us recognize the kind of things that we ought to be sacrificing and just reveal to us how we ought to do that, how we ought to take that approach sensitize our hearts and our minds to the way that you speak to us and reveal to us what that next step may look like. Father, we thank you and pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.